Welcome listeners in podcast land. Whether your name is Inigo Montoya, whether we had you at hello, or whether you can handle the truth, this is the Beyond Ring Podcast, where we explore faith out of bounds. My Facebook feed this week had this post. A Christian, a Jew, a Muslim and an atheist walked into a bar. They all talk, laugh, drink, and have a conversation. It's not a joke. It's just what happens when people don't act like tossers. You're with Matt and Lucas, and this is Episode 7, the episode framed Beyond the Other. And in this episode, we focus on inclusivity. Were any of us to walk down our local street in a 15-minute window, we would encounter a massive array of difference of of race, religion, culture, sexual orientation, we'd stumble over greater diversity than a 19th century traveller would have encountered in a, in a whole lifetime of travel. We now live in a completely globalised, multicultural, multi-faith world, surrounded by difference and diversity as never before. We must therefore ask the question, how might we best inhabit this world? Just for tonight, what I believe doesn't matter just for tonight faith and doubt they take a breather no longer a chameleon to every stripe of Christian no longer a poet here with a nourishing wisdom With the questions I want I won't mark my skin With the questions I want There's a truth that's really hard to deal with And that is that you are you And others are not We each have a unique set of eyes A unique combo of culture and place and belief and worldview, and it'll be unlike anyone else's lens. And another complicating factor is that we choose to belong with others who are in some way like us, be it politically or religiously or culturally, and that's fine, that's okay, perhaps that's even natural and necessary in negotiating this whole human being thing. But how are we to interact and engage with people who are different and who belong in different ways? How might we engage in an open way in which we honour the integrity of the other and a way in which neither are diminished and perhaps in a way even both are enriched? And further, how might we avoid all the temptations of fear, rejecting, defining against, converting or wanting to make others just another version of us? I won't, I won't my skin 
questions I want. In this episode, we have three great guests, and all great guests, not only because of what they bring to the table, but because of the unique contribution they make to inclusivity. Carolyn Francis is an ordained Baptist minister who serves in inner Melbourne and has for the past 12 years. She has been a voice, particularly around issues of asylum seekers and refugees, and also the homosexuality discussion in Australia and marriage equality. We also have Bishop Jack Spong, a man who for many years has stood alongside minority groups, even in the face of death threats. And finally, Dave Andrews, a man whose life has been spent working with other faith traditions and including and working with those who have found themselves ostracized or on the margins of culture and of faith. We should all be aware of how violent violence is. We should all be aware that once we unleash a dynamic of violence, it's very hard to restore peace in the midst of conflict. So that's a legitimate concern. However, I would like to say this, that in this country, Muslims have lived in this country for over 200 years peacefully. So much so that most Australians aren't even aware of the fact that they've lived in this country for over 200 years. People would have heard of the Ghan Railway but not known it was the Afghan uh, Camelias that opened up the whole of this uh, continent. Um, so I think it's really important to remember that. I think it's also important to remember that uh, when John Esposito's um, group did a survey of various Muslim communities around the world and wrote their book, Who Speaks for Us, uh, subtitled What a Billion Muslims Really Think, that most Muslims around the world said that they really uh, value democracy, they value liberty, they, they value the separation of religion and state, they value our democratic uh, uh, institutions and regulations, and they are less willing to endorse violence than American Christians are. And uh, what that would suggest then is that Muslims have lived in this country for a couple of hundred years peacefully, and uh, we haven't noticed, and that most Muslims around the world want to live peacefully uh, with us. Um, certainly there are some crazy people who are very dangerous people, but, uh, and, and some of those are Muslims, but not only Muslim. I mean, the reality is Osama bin Laden attacked uh, the World Trade Center in, uh, in the name of God, but then uh, George Bush attacked uh, Iraq uh, in, in the name of God. And while two or 3,000 people were killed in the World Trade Center, which is a tragedy, over 100,000 innocent people were killed in Iraq, which is 50 times greater tragedy. Um, so uh, if we're looking at the 
that violence and perpetrators of violence, I think we need to realise that there are violent people in the world of all traditions and religions. Some are Muslim, but Islam doesn't have a corner on violence, that Christians have the same capacity for violence as Muslims do. In fact, every atrocity that's being committed these days by ISIS has been already committed by Christians. And, um, and uh, Al-Qaeda was set up to resist the violence of the Crusaders. Um, so we need to acknowledge these issues are important issues. We need to realise that extremists are attacking people. We need people that are people of goodwill. Both traditions need to come together, acknowledge the history of peace and the desire for peace between our communities and strengthen the peace. We do it by strengthening the relationships between our people so that we can resist the incursions um, by extremists into our community. And do you think that we're that we're hardwired to be with people like us or uh, is there something innate uh, which which causes us to clump together like that yeah i think so i think that um that it's a, it's a survival mechanism that we identify any possibility of threat and we feel most comfortable with those that are most familiar and and we are most suspicious of those who seems strange. So as a normal everyday response, prejudice has survival value. Making it pre-ju- pre-judgment has survival value because we're quick to pick up the possibility of difference which may be a threat to us. However, mo- most of us have been in situations where we realise that we've been prejudiced and prejudged people and discovered that they are not the threat that we assume to be. And so the way forward is for us to meet with people who are not the same as us, who are, um, who are not like us, and discover in our relationships with those people um, the fundamental commonality that we have as human beings, uh, that all of us uh, are made in the image of God, um, that all of us have a deep desire to love and be loved, and, and on that basis we can come together whether we're in theological agreement or not, to be welcoming of one another, to be supportive of one another. What helped break your own box and help you transcend your own horizon of suspicion or uncertainty and prejudice and what helped you and what might help us? I think somehow I was brought up with the idea that that we're good and they're bad. But when I went to India, I encountered the goodness in people there in a way that was undeniable. And I just had to confront my theology that had misconstrued them. And I had to acknowledge that um, there was good and bad in all of us and the goodness that I encountered in them was real. And I needed to deconstruct and reconstruct my theology in a way that honoured that goodness that I found in other people of other religions and did that in a way that was truly um, reverential and respectful. So it was encountering the other person, not in a generic sense, but in the face of particular Hindus and Buddhists and Sikhs and 
and Muslims that I encountered who I, I found were good people, godly people. And I just found myself, as we do in Hindu, India, uh, kind of bowing before people and saying, Namaste, I bow to that which is a god within you. And I, I um, began a journey of trying to understand what it was. We seem pretty keen to draw boundaries and lines of division between each other. Have you ever actually read the story of Robinson Crusoe? No, me neither. But we all know it's about a man shipwrecked, marooned, alone on an island in the middle of the ocean. As he looks out from his beach across the ocean, the furthest that he can see is the horizon, which essentially describes the boundaries of his existence. His horizon can be viewed in two ways. There can be his limits, the impassable walls of his prison to within which his life is limited. Or it can be the source of endless unknown potential. It is from beyond the horizon which comes the next rain cloud bearing fresh water or the possibility of a rescue ship. His horizon can be either, or perhaps both, a boundary of impermeable limit or a source of potential to be awaited and welcomed. So how do you think we should treat difference in our society, in our communities and neighbourhoods? What's your default way of dealing with diversity? If different beliefs were different fruits, do you think that the world ought to organise itself into separate orchards of homogenous trees? Or perhaps there's bowls of fruit salad still with discernible chunks of each fruit but happily coexisting? Or are you comfortable with the idea of a completely blended smoothie? Are your horizons the limits of your world, or are they the threshold of possibility? How among my skin with the questions I want? You were advocating for the rights of gay and lesbian people uh, 30 years ago. I mean, we're, we're having that conversation still today. Are we just, you know, are we only just now catching up to, to you know, what you're on about 30 years ago? Well, I think there's some truth in that. But again, it comes out of an understanding of the Christian faith that I get in the Bible. Uh, and that sounds strange to people, but it's very true. We have to have a working definition to keep prejudices alive. Now, the way we kept slavery alive is that we defined black people as subhuman. And as long as we were sure they were subhuman and slavery was a legitimate institution, and segregation is just the bastard child of, of slavery. It just keeps, it gives us another hundred years to adjust to the reality. But as soon as we define people of color as full human beings, then you can no longer enslave or segregate them. And our definition with gay and lesbian people was if you were a liberal, uh, your definition was that they were mentally sick and needed to be cured. That was at least kind. If you were a conservative, their definition was they were morally depraved people and needed to be converted. And if they couldn't be converted, it was okay to bash them or to beat them or to kill them. 
uh, which and we killed a number of gay people, even Hitler exterminated gay people along with Jews and cripples and mentally defective people and, and anybody that he regarded as subhuman. Well, what we now know, and every scientist in the world and every doctor in the world who is educated knows that homosexuality is not a choice. It is something you are. Uh, I did not choose to be heterosexual. I never made a decision that I wanted to be heterosexual. I just woke up when I was somewhere between 12 and 13 and girls didn't seem obnoxious to me any longer. And I began to comb my hair and take baths more frequently. <laughs> and anything else I could do that would attract female attention. Well, when you suddenly realize that gay and lesbian people don't wake up when they're 12 or 13 and decide they will be gay or lesbian either. You know, why would you do that? You know, I've decided to be gay because I love to have my parents disown me and my church condemn me and my friends beat me up and get fired from my job and all the other things we've done to gay and lesbian people. So when the definition changed, uh, gay and lesbian people are not abnormal. They're simply minority. So are left-handed people. And we used to persecute left-handed people. So are red-headed people. We used to look upon red-headed people as sort of children of the devil. Uh, you know, it's one thing to be minority in the human family. It's another thing to be subhuman. Well, the definition changed, and you can no longer treat gay and lesbian people the way you treated them. They are not mentally sick. There's not a medical science in the uh, doctor of medical science in the world that thinks that homosexual people are are people who have deliberately chosen an evil life. It's that's it's biology, and so we we had to learn to accept that, and that became so obvious to me. And I was born as homophobic as anybody else. Uh, but I finally went to the Cornell School of Medicine in New York City and worked with some doctors, and not a soul over there thought that anybody chose their sexual orientation. And not anybody over there thought that homosexual people were sort of born on another planet. They turned out to be your own sons and daughters, your aunts and uncles, your brothers and sisters, in some cases, even your fathers and mothers. Because uh, gay people are perfectly capable of reproducing. And so we had to go through this revolution of thought. And, but when you get that clear, that homosexual people do not choose, it's not something they choose to do, it's something they were born as, then you've got to get, then it's like treating people of color as if they're inferior, or treating women as if they're inferior, it becomes a human issue. And that, that entered our world back in the latter half of the 19th century. And that's when we started to debate. What people don't know is when you debate a prejudice publicly, the prejudice is already dying. You wouldn't be debating it if the basis of the prejudice wasn't already questioned. And so the debate means it's dying. It's just a matter of time. And in this country, I don't know about Australia, but in this country, this is a dead issue. Even the conservative party in America wants not to debate this anymore because they know it's a losing issue. Uh, most everybody under 40 today treats homosexuality as a perfectly normal part of the human family. Uh, older people still have some adjustments to do. But politicians know that, that every year it, it's more of a majority for the open position than it is the closed position. And politicians want to win more than they want anything else. And so they're going to get on the right side of the issues. We've got a town in New Jersey called Hoboken, Frank Sinatra's hometown. Uh, but Hoboken is about a 40% gay city. And so the mayor of Hoboken always walks in the gay pride parade because no politician's going to give up 40% of the vote before he starts. He's not going to be a successful politician. So the world changes and people react to the change. And they'll, they'll say all sorts of things, but nobody will now say that homosexual people are, are simply sinful people and we need to 
convert them. It's just not proper anymore. We've talked a bit about sin, and it's such a guilt-loaded, problematic term, and we really need to move beyond it. And yet, I have a devil's advocate sort of question of, if we don't talk about sin, what about calls to responsibility and to accountability? And how can we make sure that in freeing us from the really unhelpful, clunky, you know, yeah, stuff around sin... How do we talk about our brokenness? Yeah, I think it's calling us to a new level of maturity, uh, which I think is important to see and to understand. Uh, We think of sin in terms of deeds, and I think that's where we make our mistake. The the Greek word that we translate sin is harmatia in the New Testament, and it translates the same kind of image in the Hebrew language. And harmatia literally is taken out of the bow and arrow experience, and it literally means to miss the mark. Sin means not to be what you were created to be. That's what it originally meant in the biblical story, in both Hebrew and in Greek. And if we can begin to understand that, it's not an intrinsic evil. It's an inability to be all that you were created to be. And turn the church's message away from rescuing the fallen into empowering you to become deeply and fully human freeing you to give your life away and love to other people, calling you to a new maturity. The church doesn't like mature people. The church likes to keep people children so that you can uh, be manipulated. That's why the church is always exhorting us to be born again. You know, if you're born again, you start over as a child. If you're born again enough times, you never have to grow up. You never have to accept responsibility. And I think calling people to a level of maturity, to responsibility, to to action that escapes their own self-interest and becomes part of the self-interest of the whole community is an essential ingredient in our humanity to say nothing of in our Christian faith. So I think we've got to move in a very different direction. And the world is changing. And one of the things that helped to change is that gay people came out of the closet. And it's awful hard to hate somebody you really know and care about. Once you see a homosexual person as a human being that you know and like, then your prejudices begin to die. And so as gay people came out of the closet, the scientific world began to say, no, the basis upon which homophobia is built is simply a false basis. And then people began to come out of the closet. And then the politicians, I watched President Obama, uh, who before he was president was a clear representative of a young generation who believed that gay rights were essential. But when he became president, he read polls and he saw that was not a minority position. So he, he kept saying his mind wasn't made up on that issue. He kept it open. And then finally, he said his mind had become made up when he got the political majority. Politicians are going to survive, too. Uh, and I think he's been a fantastic president on a number of human uh, issues like that, not just the fact that he's an African-American, which means people have got to change their definition of an African-American because he's now the president of the United States. You can hardly relate to him the way we used to relate to slaves if he's got the power of the presidency. So it's been a, that's what I call a rise in consciousness. And right now we have a a female candidate, Hillary Clinton, who may or may not be elected president, I don't know, but it doesn't matter because she has forced everybody in America, all 300 million of us, to imagine that a woman can be elected. And that's the barrier you have to get over. You got to get over the imagination barrier. We can now imagine a woman being president. Nobody today, we might still be racist in our hearts, but nobody today can go public and talk about the inferiority of people of color and get away with it because they would be condemned on all sides. 
and nobody today can make jokes about the inferiority of women. And we've gotten to the place where nobody can make jokes about the inferiority of homosexual people because consciousness is growing. And I'm pleased about that. But, and I'm proud of my church. The Anglican Church in America led the fight for gay rights in this country. And uh, you know, I've gotten 16 death threats in my life and every one of them came out of that battle. And strangely enough, all of my death threats came not from atheists or Buddhists. I've never had my life threatened by an atheist or a Buddhist. They were all Bible-quoting, true-believing Christians that were going to kill me because of my witness for gay and lesbian people. I've loved my life, as a matter of fact. It's not over yet, but it's, it's getting near the twilight. I'm 84. But uh, I've loved my life, and I've loved watching the world change. I'm, as I say, I'm not even controversial in my church today. I might be if I were in the Archdiocese of Sydney, but I'm not controversial in my church today. My church has affirmed every position for which I have fought long before it was the majority position. Lord, help us remember the quiet worlds behind every face. That beneath the guise of familiarity, everyone is one of a kind. And everyone welcomes an act of kindness. Help us live out kindness as a domestic force of grace. As a foreshadowing of your sacred light. Help us give kindness, not like gift-wrapped presents once a year on special occasions, but like cups of coffee all year round, on every occasion. Help us be kind, Lord, the kind of kind that brings you glory. Carolyn Francis is a refreshing Aussie voice, an ordained Baptist minister who's served in congregations in inner Melbourne over the past 12 years. She's really passionate about everyday spirituality, about issues of social justice and trying to break down the barriers that we create between one another. Over the past few years, Carolyn has been involved in campaigning for marriage equality and the full inclusion of the LGBTI community in our churches and in places of worship. She's been sought after as a mouthpiece on this issue. She's appeared on the 7.30 report and in other news media discussing the importance of social inclusion for the LGBTI community, as well as discussing asylum seeker policy, political leadership, and the role of faith and religion in political culture. So Carolyn Francis, welcome to Beyond Room. It's cool um, hearing your journey as someone who now is in formal ministry in pretty front and centre church in the sense of you're a minister at Collins Street Baptist, middle of Melbourne, around the buzz and the diversity and, and the activity. What's it like ministering in, in that context for you? Uh, Collins Street Baptist is a great place for me to belong. You can't avoid any of the issues of society when you're bang smack in the middle of the city. You can't avoid uh, what it looks like when people are thriving and successful you can't avoid what it looks like when people are marginalised and on the brink of destruction or self-destruction. However, we have old buildings that are heritage listed and 
170-something years of tradition to grapple with, and those things uh, are always a great challenge. On the one hand, uh, you have this beautiful uh, sense of tradition and this knowledge that the church has been there long before you and will be there long after you, and it is ultimately not about you. There's also parts of that tradition which are themselves quite radical. This is a church that has been in the middle of the city for 170 years and has often uh, flown in the face of cultural conventions and had quite a prophetic role in the city and in the church. So tradition is not always a backward thing. And I've found that that heritage of being a prophetic voice, of being engaged in the city in ways that surprise people is something that has actually really inspired me and has been a place from which I can, I think, behave and act and speak with courage. I'm loving the image you've given us of sort of holding, you've got one hand on tradition and you've got the other hand on a new future and possibilities and being broken open by those two, the hands being pulled in both those directions. Uh, one of the things you've been broken open to and have become a voice uh, for has been marriage equality. Why has that issue emerged for you? How has that issue become a significant one for you? I first became involved in marriage equality as an issue because I kept hearing voices in the Australian media and in politics that claimed to represent Christians that were typically voices from very conservative lobby groups who were saying, this is what Christians believe on this issue. And I simply wanted to say, they don't represent me or many other people I know. There is another Christian voice on this issue. And I came to that place, I suppose, as a pastor, because there were people who were loved members of the congregations I had served in who were gay and in same-sex relationships, I could see the value in them, I could see the authenticity of their Christian faith, and I couldn't stand by and hear them spoken about in the manner in which they were being referred to in the public conversation. What did it, what did it look like? Uh, how did others respond to you? And, and tell us more about what you learned. Well, there's been a great variety of experiences that I've had. I receive uh, a lot of mail. I receive mail from Christian people who want to express how strongly they disagree with me. I also receive letters of thanks, cards of thanks, pictures from people's commitment ceremonies, mm. pictures of their kids and grandkids and stories about what it means to them to have someone from perhaps the church they grew up in or the church they've been rejected from speaking about the possibility of their inclusion in the church in the future. I receive letters from grandmas telling me how they have grandchildren who are in same-sex relationships and they want to go to the wedding and thank you for being part of making that a possibility. We've had days where there's been protesters out the front of our church uh, abusing people as they arrive and speaking through megaphones during the service, things that really deeply traumatise people who I love and who are part of my community. 
I have had relationships within my own denomination fracture as a result of this issue and that can be deeply painful uh, and I've had a lot of fascinating conversations uh, with good people who both agree and disagree with me about what is the substance of our Christian faith, what are the negotiables and non-negotiables and I've had a lot of opportunities to grapple with people about how do we belong together when we don't agree? What is it that holds us together when there are particular issues on which, on which we do not see eye to eye? I have learnt and grown a lot in those conversations, but there are parts of it that have been costly to me and to others. And uh, I still feel emotional about some of those things. The damage I have seen done to other people has been uh, very difficult to watch and observe and be part of. Mm. It can be a brutal conversation at times. It can times, be a brutal it? conversation. Yeah. And I'm, I actually understand that. I think I'm not someone who wants to say I don't see why people get hot and bothered over questions of sexuality and marriage. I think when we're talking about these things, we are talking about the deepest parts of our human condition. We are talking about our most intimate relationships, our deepest sense of belonging. And so the reason people get worked up is a good one. It's also the reason why being excluded from marriage or having your intimate relationships deemed unacceptable or sinful, it's the same reason that that's so painful because you are critiquing the deepest part of a person's identity, uh, a deep sense of who they are uh, in their most inner places, and it's deeply painful when people are told that's unacceptable. Mm. I strongly believe that Christianity is best understood as a way of life and a way of practising faith together rather than as a set of beliefs that we always agree on. Believing is important, but for me, the most authentic Christian community is held together by relationships, by the practices of faith, and not by the need for everyone to share doctrinal convictions on every issue. It's true that that can be messy and challenging, but I am immensely proud of the people in my congregation for the manner in which they can hold conversations about things on which we do not all agree and do so with grace and respect and dignity and love and with a faith that God will hold us together despite of despite those differences. So why is it that communities or churches tend to put their fences around beliefs and the set of ideas rather than the practices and the behaviour that, uh, that, that, that you feel is perhaps more important? Well, it's simple and it's quick mm. and it doesn't require that much of you. 
you can create identity very, very quickly, a strong sense of identity and common belonging by naming what you believe in and how you're different from other people. Uh, it can be quite a cynical tactic, although I don't believe that's the case a lot of the time. But in superficial ways, it works very well. What's more challenging is to ask of people the kind of messy relationships that occur when you disagree and have to work on that. What is more challenging is to ask people to be committed to practices that implicate them in their everyday lives. The commitment is greater, the challenge is greater, the discomfort is greater, and that's not something we're good at bearing a lot of the time. Mm. And I'm no different. When someone in my church comes up to me and talks about the ways in which they disagree with me, I often find that profoundly challenging mm. and uncomfortable. And on a day where I'm tired, I would prefer to not have the conversation. So I completely understand how difficult it can be to stay in relationship with people who disagree with you. Mm. It takes a lot of effort to explain to people why they're wrong and I'm right. Yeah. <laughs> totally. It does. It takes a lot a of effort goal. to listen to perspectives you're tempted to simply dismiss. Yeah. Yes. So you're pointing towards the idea that it's not so much what we believe but how we believe that that's actually the litmus test of what we do actually believe in a sense. I'm sure that's basically what I've just said, but when I hear it, I want to affirm the importance of belief sure. as well. Uh, I don't want to go as far as to say that as long as we're hanging in there together, it just doesn't matter what we believe. Um, I think that there are theological understandings that are very helpful for human flourishing and some that are profoundly unhelpful for human flourishing. And I think it's good for us to name those things. I personally have strong convictions around many issues of theology and doctrine and belief that I'm happy to talk to people about. What I'm not happy to do is to make our relationship dependent on those things or their belonging in my church dependent upon those things or our understanding of ourselves as Christian as dependent on those things. One of the uh, criticisms or points that gets raised in this conversation is go, well, I can love the sinner, but hate the sin. Uh, I'm happy to be in a relationship with them, but they need to know that what is going on is wrong, right? How do we walk that line uh, between belief and, and practice? That's tricky. Uh, for me, one central question is whether my beliefs are proceeding from love or from fear. It sounds like a simple question, but I often find it very challenging. I think that anything that proceeds from fear or anxiety is not the best expression of what God is like and what we might be like in relationship to God. I think little catchphrases like, love the sinner but hate the sin are really just polite ways of saying please let me name the ways in which you are inadequate but I shall do it with a smile on my face. Um, I know how incredibly hurtful that kind of theology has been to many 
good, faithful Christian people. Of course there is sin in the world. Um, whether that is best understood at the centre of our theology or not is probably a worthwhile question for us to ask. Those of us who have been part of the evangelical tradition, and I certainly have been and in many ways still am, I think that we need to make sure that the rest of our theology is as well-rounded and as well-articulated as our theology of sin, or it becomes very unbalanced. I'm Beryl, and I'm a Rotarian. I tried once to cleanse my chakra, but I must have dozed off. Reading the Old Testament is worse than when I watch Game of Thrones. I don't mind the nudity. That's right. It's time for Beryl's Advocate. I've been going to my church for 70 years. I always park in the same spot. I always sit in my same seat. I'd like to see my church grow and new people come along. I just still want it to be my church. Why can't people change to what's already there rather than expecting what's already here to change for them? Well, God bless you, Beryl. Churches are made and sustained by people like Beryl who faithfully belong and serve in a place over many years. The sense of belonging that someone has after being part of a church for that long is is a sacred and beautiful thing. I think for all of us there is this challenge about the difference between belonging to a church and sensing that the church belongs to us. If we can belong to a community and yet not feel that that gives us the right to determine exactly what it will be for both us and other people, we start moving more towards, I think, what Christian community actually can be. There's a sense, I think, in which Christian faith is a profound set of challenges to let go of things to which we cling tightly. And one of those things that we're all so tempted to cling to is our preferences for what church looks like and how it feels to belong. And I think part of our calling as Christians is to make sure we're able to let go, the spiritual practice of letting go of everything that is not the ultimate substance of God in us and us in God. And so the challenge for Beryl and for me and for some of us is to strongly belong and love that belonging without clinging to what church is for me. It's really hard because, as you said, belonging is key and crucial and to belong you sort of need a, a tribe to belong to. You, you need to gather around ideas and thoughts and practices. So we affirm that. But the problem with being a part of a tribe is how quickly it becomes tribal and defined against others. How do we do that? How do we value our tribe, our need to belong, without the the definition against and the move towards becoming very exclusive and inclusive? I would love to see the church as a whole really recover the ancient Christian practice of hospitality as a key and core part of our sense of identity 
And by that I don't just mean having people over for dinner, although that's nice, but this sense that a key part of being church, a core part of our identity is that we open ourselves up to other people who are unlike us and invite them in. That that's not a nice added extra to being Christian or being church, that that is a key activity and that it is challenging to us and it's meant to be. I think that the practice of hospitality, which is also the practice of welcome and of inclusion, is something that is meant to change us as well as provide a space for other people. So the moment that church is designed to change other people and not us, I think we've lost a fundamental aspect of the Christian gospel. At its best, the church is a place of growth for everyone, which means that the newest person and the longest standing member all continue to experience transformation there. And one of the best ways that can happen is by flinging the doors open and meeting people who challenge who we are and what we think we know. It's harder to do than to say, yeah. can I be honest? Yeah. Um, it's It's harder to do because we're trying to maintain a sense of who we are at the same time as we're allowing people to profoundly challenge that and we're hanging on to both those things. Mm. And I completely understand the feeling that people have that it would be easier just to define who we are and tell other people to like it or lump it. Mm. But I think that the example of Jesus calls us to something better than that. And the people who seemed to grasp what he was on about most as you read the Gospels were people who were able to listen and let go to some of what they thought they knew. And I want to be one of those people, but I know how very difficult it is. And why so hard? What is so threatening about the different and the other? What is the barrier to that sort of openness? I think there are many barriers to that kind of openness and that simple answers don't suffice. I think that there is a discomfort that we experience um, on an emotional level when things that we thought were solid turn out to be challenged or perhaps even wrong. And that the first thing we seek to do when we feel that discomfort and that anxiety is to just fix it. And the easiest way to fix it is to go back to what was solid and what we knew. I think we really need to help people manage the experience of uncertainty and discomfort that occurs when someone challenges what we thought we knew. And the church has been very poor, I think, at doing that. We're very quick to narrate people's experiences of discomfort. For example, if we feel uncomfortable at the idea of same-sex relationships, the church is very quick to come in and narrate that for us and explain that that's because it is not godly. Then we get to feel more comfortable and more settled and we don't have to deal with that experience of discomfort. I think that as Christian leaders... We need to help people 
live with uncertainty and discomfort and mystery and name that as a place of spiritual growth, a place of Christian transformation rather than being quick to help people dismiss it. So the experience of of discomfort is uh, not an indication of the absence of God, but perhaps the opposite, actually an indication that that's the place God is attempting to use to open you up. I really strongly believe that's the case. And that's very challenging to us, especially when we have been told that we can have a sense of where God is present or not present or where God is leading us to or not leading us to uh, in an emotional way. So uh, we've often been taught that uh, things that are of God bring a kind of peace and things that are not of God bring a fear or anxiety or discomfort. Now, I think at a very deep level that's true, but we don't get to those places without a lot of honest soul searching. And I think that some of the least fine moments of the church come when our moments of discomfort are used to quickly name where God is and where God isn't, when in fact it's about what we've known before and what we haven't known before. That's why I love that understanding ourselves as belonging to something, not this church thing, belonging to us. And that's so, it's actually countercultural because we we live in a consumer culture that, that, well, if we don't like that particular product, we can just go and find another one that, that suits us. And yet here we here is something that we're being invited to um, commit ourselves to, invest ourselves into. And it's not a strategy for church growth necessarily, no. <laughs> which challenges us because those of us who work in the church are strongly motivated by all sorts of good reasons to be part of something that grows and flourishes. And yet the stuff we're talking about here is difficult and some people will simply not tolerate it. Yeah, it's a great sell for church growth, isn't it? Come to the discomfort, come to the, you know, the awkwardness and the unanswered questions and the tensions and the... Yes. Yeah. It's hard to name all of those things on the list of 10 things your church believes in. Um, and it's hard to articulate to people why it would be worth living in this way. Mm. And yet spiritual growth is, I think, an experience of discomfort that leads to growth. Can you give us some examples of that? Particularly, an issue which highlights it very well is, of course, as you said, marriage equality. How have you seen people stay with the discomfort, move through the discomfort, be transformed The examples of transformation that I have seen, and I have seen many, almost inevitably come through people's personal relationships and being faced with caring for or deeply loving someone who turns out to be something other than we were expecting. So I have seen grandmothers and grandfathers and mothers and fathers and aunts and uncles have to grapple with and change their views because someone they deeply love is same-sex attracted and wants to share that part of themselves. And we all know sad, uh, tragic stories of people who've been unable to change and have rejected people they formerly loved 
because they turned out to be same-sex attracted. But we also know many, many situations of people who have looked at this person they love and have said, I am going to have to work at changing my expectations about who you were going to be and who other people are going to be in the world because I know this love I have for you is not something that I am willing to give up or that I can give up. So personal relationships really are the site for transformation for so many of us. And that's one of the reasons why I can't give up on church or Christian community. It is at its best a place where we belong with people who are not like us. And that's how we change. That's how we transform. These people rub off our harsh edges and present us with stories of who they are and experiences that they have had, which are different from our own. And in the course of being in relationship with them and loving them, we're changed. I am so deeply grieved by the stories I hear of people who are excluded from Christian communities. It should be the place anyone can come and find some sense of belonging and of love and hope and grace. And uh, as a leader in the church, I have no hesitation in apologising on behalf of the wider church to people who have been excluded and badly treated. And unfortunately, there's a long list of those people. However, I would also want to say that for every place which will treat someone harshly, there is another place that will welcome them with open arms. And the search for a place to explore one's spirituality and to belong to this larger Christian story is a search that people shouldn't give up on. Uh, There are many people who have had to spend time grappling with that on their own outside of the church before they've found a place where they fit. And I have immense respect and admiration for people who've been able to hang in there. Uh, Keep looking is what I want to say to people because there are so many places that will be willing to change themselves rather than expect you to change. They might not be the big and glossy places. You might have to look a little way off the beaten track, but keep searching. Is there any parting words for you, um, for us, for our listeners, uh, particularly in terms of what spaces of authentic, honest, open-hearted faith might look like? The best expression of open-hearted, authentic faith is the space we bring, the space we create in ourselves when we are radically open and willing to hear the voice of God from wherever it might come, where we take a posture of engagement and humility toward other people, both those with whom we agree and those with whom we disagree. And when we assume that posture of openness and humility and searching, I do believe, I do have a strong conviction that God will meet us in that place. Other people may not come to the party and those of us who are looking for fellow travellers and the perfect church made up of them will often be disappointed. The challenge is to remain 
that open, humble, growing, learning person amidst whatever community we find ourselves in. find out more about all of our three guests there's info and links on our website at beyondering.com.au and don't forget to join in the conversation on facebook or in the private facebook group for deeper engagement next week's episode is beyond 2000 we're looking at evolutionary theology what is that great question to find out tune in next week to hear bruce sanguine a voice you'll have heard in episode one he'll explain what all that's about yeah, I'm not sure that, I mean, the, the question for me is, that do, do we need, have we surpassed, have we surpassed Christianity as a religion? I'm, I'm uncertain about this. We'll leave you with the words of Aussie songwriter and poet Lance Peel, who says, everyone is someone else's weirdo. Thanks for coming Beyondering. Beyondering is supported by the Progressive Christian Network of Victoria. Join the network, find resources and learn about upcoming events at pcnvictoria.blogspot.com.au and Common Dreams, an alliance of religious progressives in Australia, New Zealand and the South Pacific. Visit commondreams.org.au to learn more about the next Common Dreams conference to be held in Brisbane, September 16th to 19th. 2016. Edited by Shaz Mullins and technologically massaged by Adam. He's got a head like a ping pong ball.